0: Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned of other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. I'm very pleased today to welcome Austin Whitman to the podcast. Austin is CEO of Climate Neutral, a U.S.-based, consumer-focused climate certification company that aims to inspire consumers to factor a brand's climate impact into their buying decisions. Austin has worked in technology, climate, and clean energy finance for more than two decades with many small and early-stage organizations. Well, thank you very much, Austin, for joining me today on the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So, uh, we've had a little bit of a challenge actually connecting, uh, and I'm very glad to finally be speaking to you. Um, Can you maybe just, uh, by way of introduction, talk a little bit about, uh, tell us uh, what what, what you do at Climate Neutral and how you
1: came to be involved and uh, what your vision is? Great. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Climate Neutral is a fairly young nonprofit, although we're about a year and a half old now. Uh, We are based in the US and our simple goal is to get all companies out there to become net zero with their carbon emissions. So the way that most companies will have to do that is to offset all of their emissions for last year and then work on reducing their emissions in the future. And we're doing this by way of a consumer label that tells consumers that a company has achieved carbon neutrality for for its operations. Um, It's something that's been sorely missing from the consumer market here in the US. There have been a few attempts in Europe to do this, but um, none of them has achieved much scale and impact. So, we felt it was a good time, given the urgency of the climate crisis, to do something like this. Uh, so, I launched the organization along with two others who provided seed funding for it. And we did that in March of 2019. And over the course of 2019, we recruited about 100 brands to be certified. And earlier this year, we certified those plus another 30 or so. So, we've got and 146 actually to now, and um, heading toward 250 by the end of this year that will be committed to certifying next year. Great, right, great. Right. Well, what's your background, Austin, and, and how did you come into this space? Yeah, so my, my background is kind of a, a diverse mix of policy and finance and um, and sort of environmental markets going back to 2004. Um, I was involved in uh, carbon investing and renewable energy investing in the 2007, 8, 9, 10 time period, Uh, worked on policy, climate policy at sort of local, state, and federal, and a little bit of international levels um, from 2010 to 14, and then worked at a clean tech company on state regulatory policy for smart grid and energy efficiency and clean energy. Um, So... When you spend that much time working on a problem and uh look at the big at the big trend heading in the wrong direction, it starts to get a little frustrating and frankly a little bit unnerving um you know when when I can count over the course of my career you know a a substantive rise in global greenhouse gas emissions it sort of feels like wow what what can I be doing differently um that could potentially have have more impact and so that's the point that I was at in late two thousand and eighteen when I started talking to the two guys that uh, I launched the organization with, and we uh we basically put you know put pen to paper and designed uh the organization as it is so uh you know it, the conversation came at a good time for me personally um, and uh our hope is this can really scale some impact.
0: yeah, yeah, can you maybe just uh it could be a bit technical at times, but just explain a little bit what what a carbon uh, offset is? And why you think that it has a an important role to play in dealing with the climate problems we're now facing?
1: Yeah, uh, I'll try to try to give you the sort of less technical summary. We can go into any technical details uh, that you want to dive into, but a carbon offset is is fundamentally a commitment from somebody to uh, capture or avoid emitting one ton of carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions. Um, That's fundamentally what a carbon offset is. Now, offsets can be used in a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, What we're talking about is getting companies to purchase them voluntarily because they know it's the right thing to do, uh, and they know the governments are not making them do it enough. And what it does is it has the effect of giving companies a price on their carbon emissions, which is really what policy should be doing, but it hasn't done. And so, when a company assesses what its carbon emissions are and then offsets all of them, it has a price on those emissions, and then a financial incentive to to decrease them. So carbon offsets can come from a whole number of different types of projects. Most commonly, people think of forests, um, you know, tree planting or stopping trees getting cut down, uh, improving forest management practices. Uh, but there's a whole kind of innovation right now around different types of offsets because there are many different ways to reduce carbon emissions because there are many different sources of carbon emissions.
0: Yes, uh, b- b- very interesting. <clears throat> I mean, you say very, very many different sources, but it seems like these solutions aren't looking at the sources. They're looking somewhere else. Because presumably, if you have a plant that's generating carbon uh, emissions, your first uh, way around looking at that would be say, well, let's let's reduce the emissions. This seems to be a second order kind of way of addressing it by saying, let's go somewhere else and do something else. Why not just, in the first instance, just go to where the problem is? This 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 plant is uh, emitting too much carbon. Uh, uh, we just, you know, uh, uh, there should be some regulations, and let's just cut this back
1: yeah well, uh, I think we'd all love that to happen, but it's uh it's not happening, and that's really the the problem um, so yeah I mean turning off the fossil powered electricity uh, generation and and other other um, you know sources of fossil fuel emissions would be certainly a, a great way to to bite off a huge chunk of global emissions um, you know in global scale. Terms there's about 55 gigatons of emissions annually, and 30 35 ish of those come from burning fossil fuels. So it's it's a big chunk of it, not all of it, but it's a big chunk of it. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, you know, we haven't figured out a way to transform those energy sources into um, things that are more renewable uh, more quickly, and we could be we could be moving quicker on the transition to wind and solar power and and what have you zero carbon forms of energy but um you know, but that requires uh a better market design to capture some of the costs of of carbon emissions that are currently not being not being counted. yeah yeah um you 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 say
0: uh, as we you know the 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 actual n- number of gigatons and so forth um it's it seems to be I mean, what state what what's what would you say how would you characterize the state of the, the the market at this stage um it's uh in terms of its development uh I guess there's the you know the, the, there's the individual ability to offset your own carbon footprint but the corporate as well um it's it seems to be a uh sector that's had some challenges in the past um I know in the UK uh maybe just looking at it from at, at, in terms of personal consumption and so forth but people talk about it a little bit uh, in, in terms of you know as catholic indulgences that you're buying some kind of indulgence to 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 you know uh spend your own carbon however you like and 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 then just buy an offset and so forth but um i, I guess we we're, we're less talking about the individual here and more talking about the Corporate world. I've seen some pretty eye uh, opening figures about the, the expectations for the growth in this market. Can you maybe just give some uh, background in terms of
1: where you think we are and, and, and where you see the market going? Sure, the voluntary market is is again what we're talking about here. Companies or or individuals purchasing carbon credits voluntarily, yeah. and by most estimates, that market's about three hundred million tons, and it's grown significantly in the in the last you know three or four years. It was stalled out at about you know sixty million tons for a number of years. So we've seen a lot of growth recently. Um, now, that different that market is is different uh, in in many ways from. What's called a compliance market, which is a market that's driven by policy regimes that are requiring companies to reduce uh carbon emissions, so let's just leave compliance markets out of it for the time being because that's a whole other discussion, yeah, yeah, but within within the voluntary markets, um you know I think people have to accept uh an uncomfortable reality, which is that um, we've tried we've tried sort of the you know the the moral suasion. Approach, um, you know that there's kind of a right way to to operate, which is to consume less and travel less and everything else. And honestly, those uh, uh, those wishes haven't come true. And I think there's a point at which you have to say, what are the where the tools that we have access to, and are they being used to their full capacity? And and right now, you know, offsets, um, you know, basically markets where you're paying somebody to uh, avoid or or, or You know, or capture a ton of carbon somewhere in the world. uh, That market is significantly underinvested in. So there's far more capacity to do more carbon mitigation than there is um, actual demand for it. So we really need to just drive demand in this market. And you can look at that a few ways. I think one one way that we really look at this is a it's an it's a near term hedge against you know the, the likelihood that longer term reduction commitments might not pan out as people are promising so I think it, it scares me when I see a corporation promising anything but by, by 2050 because that's 30 years off and you know the company will be five CEOs further along in its evolution and you know seven economic cycles will have passed and you'll be looking at the second or third generation of consumers I mean a lot changes in that time period and the you know the continued emission of carbon during that time, um, without any sort of check on on how much is being emitted in a given year is really problematic from a climate perspective yeah. so yes yeah. is there a lot is there growing acceptance do you think now of carbon offsetting and so forth and what would you point to to show that uh, i think the 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 growth in the market demand is is one uh the one that people often you know sort of ignore when they say that no carbon offsets aren't real. I think is you know the fact that they're large publicly traded companies that are using shareholder funds to spend you know to, to purchase carbon credits that are created in pretty much exactly the same uh, you know, verification frameworks that we're talking about with the voluntary market, and they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, annually on on projects, so uh, you know if 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 this mechanism is truly not real, then you know there should be a lot of shareholders who are up in arms about companies wasting money on carbon offsets. Um, so you know, I think we, we've learned a lot in the last fifteen years about how to set up a project that's going to deliver the promised carbon mitigation, and uh, you know kind of what tests to apply and how to apply them, and technologies continue to improve on uh on on monitoring projects for example using satellite data to track the progression of a forest um a lot of people are thinking about ways to use blockchain to track carbon reductions and um verify them from end to end in the you know in in the process of of creating them so um yeah so technology is is definitely jumping into this we've seen a lot of interest in uh carbon removals which um, you know, seem to be very popular among uh, you know, the the tech crowd, which is um, somewhat funny to me because to me, you know, a removal is essentially the same as an offset. You know, somebody somewhere is capturing a ton of carbon, whether it's happening on a box on the top of a building or a tree. Um, ultimately, you know, it's it's the same outcome. Yeah,
0: uh, yeah, I, I, I. I, I like to talk about your personal journey as a social entrepreneur, just trying to understand a little bit more about the market, if you don't mind. Um, and and um, how do you, uh, what kind of uh, projects do you certify or what kind of projects uh, make the grade in terms of uh, carbon offsetting for you? I've looked into this a little bit and uh, repeatedly the research that I've come across suggests that the market is uh, very largely uh, dominated by uh, projects that don't actually offset, that don't actually provide additionality. It seems to be uh, a very problematic area and, and uh, again and again I found researchers trying to you know, work out what's happening and, and finding it very difficult to find genuine offsetting projects which are additional and, and meet the, the the criteria that you would hope for for an offsetting project. Um, and and that seems to be a problem in the development of the market. Certainly, uh, some time ago, and, and maybe that's changed now. And maybe there's some trends that suggest that there are better projects
1: that are real projects there. But how do you approach this question, Austin? Yeah, I think I mean people, I've, I've heard that point a lot. And <clears throat> you know, honestly, when you pick back to what people are reading, there's a couple of reports. Uh, there was a report done by the EU on a market mechanism that's about 12 years old uh and you know while the findings I think were were valid uh you know the conclusions are less relevant because of how the frameworks to verify carbon credits have evolved since that time um, and then there's you know there have been a couple of consulting firms that have put reports out there was a, a journalist here in the u s who did a report that was um you know based very little in reality and mostly on cherry picking a couple of projects that didn't perform so uh, yeah, so I think the, the the story that doesn't get written is is about the offset project that worked, mm-hmm. and there are lots of those. And um, the way we try to find them or ensure that we're purchasing them is to apply a few different filters to to the offset purchase. One is to only allow projects that have more recent vintage years. So rather than allowing a project that was creating offsets under a two thousand eight Regime, you know, make it more recent—2017, 2018, 2019. So um, that allows us to avoid purchasing credits that were, again, that were created earlier in the evolution of the market. The second is that we require third-party verification, which um, is is you know it, it should be standard, but it, it's it's not standard for all people who are spending money on carbon yeah. reducing that's, projects uh, uh, you know have a third party come in and apply yeah. a framework
0: that, that's very interesting because oh, not as I understand it that's
1: not so common and it probably adds cost to it. It does add cost to it yeah and and that's that's part part of the purpose it's you know it's it's kind of ensuring that think of it as a commodity right I mean someone's got to check and make sure that the wheat or the corn you know meets a certain criteria and that's fundamentally what we're trying to do here. Is create some standards around how projects get get created and looked after.
0: So uh, I can understand in the individual from an individual perspective, in a way that you know um, individual carbon offsetting. But um, are there issues around corporate offsetting that concern you?
1: Um, the there can be, depending on how corporate offsets are are used. I would say, I, I basically bring it back to sort of uh, a couple a couple fundamental questions. Um, you know, if 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 the approach that's that's being used were used by every con- company in the world, would that would it scale? Like, can the approach scale? And the, can the approach have impact at scale? Um, and then, does it pass the sort of the the science test, the laugh test of you know this is this is scientifically ridiculous or you know this is this is scientifically credible? Um, and then and then is it backed by sort of a a valid theory of change as to what you're trying to accomplish? I'll tell you that you know there's limited research, but but some research that that shows that companies that offset their carbon are more successful at. Reducing their carbon, in other words, at managing their carbon emissions, uh, than companies that don't. And the very basic thing that marks the difference is um, that they're they're forced to measure it. They're forced to understand where it comes from. And you know, in 2020, it's pretty unbelievable to think, but most companies still have no idea where their carbon emissions come from. Yeah. So if the simple act of offsetting allows you to set a goal of you know actually doing something that's achievable within three month period to greatly mitigate your impact on the climate. And it forces you down a path of actually having to measure and understand where your emissions are coming from. That seems like a real win to me. Yeah, And that's the first step in the, in the theory of change here, right? Yeah. Now what our certification does is looks annually at what a company is doing and you have to have to disclose reduction goals that you're setting. So ways that you're going to work on your operations and um, work on reducing emissions over time. Uh, so, so it's, it's, it it troubles me when, when people sort of think, well, I I offset one year's worth of emissions from one of my buildings and I'm calling myself carbon neutral. And that's the end of the story. So there needs to be a much longer term perspective here, but you also need to allow people to, to, or, or acknowledge that, um, you know, reducing emissions is hard, especially for most companies who have, uh, you know, long and complex supply chains that they only, you know, have, Little limited visibility into uh, that are, that are go, stretch around the world. So, um, in the meantime, y- you either just say, "Well, I can't do anything about reducing my emissions because it's hard," or I'm willing to spend money on offsetting, and so I'm going to do that while I'm focusing on you know medium to longer term efforts to to reduce emissions. So, I think that it, it really we look at it as as the gateway. You know, it's it's a it's a way of bringing carbon management into the consciousness of a sustainability program and getting people thinking about carbon pricing carbon and then acting on carbon so you as part of your uh, assessment take into account
0: their actual reduction ongoing actual reductions in carbon emissions
1: yeah so we ask companies what they're what they're planning to do in the next 12 to 18 months and okay. then when they recertify with us they have to report on progress against those goals and then yeah. establish new goals if those if those projects are complete yeah yeah and uh final question on this it's a big topic we've got a, a whole
0: a whole uh, many conversations on this uh, and um do you do you worry as some people suggest that uh that the carbon offsets take pressure off corporations to make fundamental changes in their own operations
1: uh, I don't because I've seen companies employing carbon offsets as kind of exactly what I just described, which is as a, a way of focusing on the real costs of carbon emissions. And as long as you know they're going into it with the expectation that this is part of an overall strategy, then... Um, then no, I think it does the opposite. It 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 prices carbon and it gets people talking about it, gets them to be aware of it. It enables them to start talking about carbon emissions with their consumers in a quantified way. Um, and yeah, it, it it makes carbon management part of the part of the the company's identity. Yeah. I think it's a it's a really important um, there's a really important line here, which is you know what sectors of the economy um yeah should we generally be um encouraging to do this i personally don't believe that the raw commodity you know the fossil fuel supplying companies in the world should be encouraged to to purchase carbon offsets um it you know it it, it fails a few of the tests that i mentioned earlier kind of the science test the laugh test um you know, the theory of change test. I, I don't think that it's a productive thing to encourage those companies to do it. And not surprisingly, they've been the ones who've jumped into the market and, and I think soured people on the idea that companies should be able to use carbon offsets. Um, conversely, there are companies that provide services and products that everybody in the world relies on every day. And those companies have a lot less direct control over kind of what they do. Uh, because, you know, within their, within, their, within their operations, because they're purchasing products and services from other companies. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the emissions are far upstream. And so in the meantime, while they try to work up their supply chain to make changes, we need to give them a way of mitigating carbon. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting.
0: I I guess you're still at an early stage in development. So, have you had a chance to see whether the companies that say, "Well, we're we're buying carbon offsets today," we're going to also reduce our emissions? Have you had a chance to go back and see how many of those have actually achieved their emissions that they've committed to?
1: Well, we're on the eve of of doing that. In January, we start recertifying our first group of companies. So, we'll hear from them on how the first year went. Uh, We'll get reports on on the progress. And yeah. yeah yeah, So that should be interesting.
0: Yeah. So you set up as a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. Um, Was that a a pretty clear cut
1: decision or were there different options that you considered? I mean, it's for me, it was, and, and for our our seed funders, it was, uh, it just seemed obvious that we need to do something that is purely focused on the mission and the outcomes, as opposed to focusing on, investor priorities or, you know, revenue goals. Uh, I think, you know, the independence that we can bring to this market um, it kind of w- will help us build trust in the label and the certification. Um, it it means that we can focus our priorities on the thing that really matters, which is the amount of carbon that we're that we're managing.
0: Yes, absolutely. And and uh, can you tell me a little bit about the growth and so forth because um, building a standard is challenging. Uh, is that something you, you from the beginning, thought is something you could do on your own? Or do you need to tie in with other uh, organisations? Are there other standards out there? But when you were looking at the... You know the problem, the issue, and you're thinking, "Well, how do we come in here and set a standard?" Can you just talk a little bit about? Uh, quite daunting, I think, uh, to 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 go in and 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 do that. How you approach that question,
1: Austin? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I mean, we obviously started with a process where we looked at it, what's out there in in the market, and and looked. We consulted with all the technical standards manuals, which frankly don't say that much as it comes to uh, carbon neutrality. Uh, there are some protocols, some general approaches and frameworks uh there's an accounting language but but when you when you when you're looking if, if you're looking for something that puts all those pieces together, you know how you ca- how you count carbon what you should do to to manage it and to offset it um there really is, isn't a whole lot of precedent so we found a pretty barren landscape there which was disappointing, but uh you know it made it a little bit easier to create something that we felt was meaningful because it wasn't like we were you know, fighting with a thousand different uh, different alternatives. Um, but then, the, probably the more important thing is thinking about how to bring that standard to market. And the the few carbon labeling efforts that uh, have have been worked on over the past decade have been brought with more of an eye toward providing clients of consulting firms with a bit of a reward at the end of a consulting process and. Not brought to the market with the consumer, uh, the consumer at the center of it, or the consumer as sort of the purpose of the of the of the label or the or the certification. So we're really trying to focus on the power of uh, of mobilizing consumers who who are at large scale very concerned about climate change, but paralyzed by not understanding what they can do about it and not feeling like someone else is doing something about it. So if we can. Tap into that sense of anxiety and frustration, and mobilize consumers. Then I think we start to make make progress. Uh, so yeah, so so we we really are, are focusing on bringing the label to market with it with a with an emphasis on consumer awareness.
0: Right, and 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 that 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 has changed. Uh, uh, there seems to be considerable momentum now. Uh, of course, the United States has, for some time, been a very polarized uh, market. But nonetheless, there does seem to be a general agreement and increasing awareness and not just amongst the youngsters and the uh, the, the millenniums and and, uh, millennial generation and so forth, but a a growing, a growing awareness. Um, But I guess a growing uh, global or or widespread awareness doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily concentrated enough to to, to, to impact, uh, to get the message across to people when they're going shopping
1: uh how, how, how does that work i think we got to be we have to be realistic about what what the message is and what we're expecting people to do uh there have been carbon content labeling efforts that have right. been started yep. and stopped or you know started and stopped and restarted and i i mean i'd love to think that every consumer will take time to read carbon labels in the same way that they might read nutrition facts but i would bet that most most people don't read nutrition facts and even fewer would actually read carbon carbon labels and know what to to make of them you know it's a nutrition fact is only meaningful if you know that you know you have some reference point right Two thousand calories a day or what have you and carbon is even harder to create a reference point around and then to frame that in the consumer's mind, I think is just, is fairly unreasonable. So the the thing that we have to think about is what is the, what's the, um, what's going through the consumer's mind when they're reaching for something on a shelf or they're browsing a website and they're deciding whether to buy something. Uh, It's a whole lot of other things other than the carbon content of that product. But if we can mobilize them uh, just simply around the idea that you know, that companies that offset all of their carbon uh, are preferable to companies that don't, then there's a binary choice that they've got to make. Do I buy this product or that product? And we've seen consumers, you know, at least the ones that engage with us on social media, resonating um, or, or responding to it and saying, you know, because of the label, I bought this product and I didn't buy the product from their competitor. And that's positive. I think, you know, we would like to to, to measure this at some point, but it's, it's a little bit early to do that. Yeah. Um, but I think that, that's really the, the important thing that we have to focus on is how do we actually get consumers to respond? Yeah.
0: Do you, are you focusing on particular niches to begin with particular product categories? Because this, this is vast. You go to supermarket, wh- where would you begin? Are you, do you pick a few particular product areas, a few industries, a few sectors, or, or how, how do you approach that?
1: Yeah, we started off with products that have... Where the, where the companies have a long history of, of more sustainably-minded consumers, out, outdoor products. Um, we've got some in Europe and some in the U.S., a number in the U.S. Um, and that's an easy one because you know, those companies yeah. Yeah. sort of have sustainability as part of their core brand. Um, then from there, we sort of think of it as more generally durable consumer goods, stuff that you buy that you think about a good a good bit um, because you're probably going to have that thing that you buy for a little while. Um yeah. And, and you're probably spending more money on it than you'd spend on other things. Um, so durable consumer goods and, and then as sort of the first overarching category. And then food and beverage has been a good one. The food and beverage industry has a, a lot of kind of commitment and uh, people – you know there's staff at these companies that think about sustainability and they have a lot a lot of history with labeling because of organic labels and non- gmo labels and and fair trade labels and and so yeah. forth so so food and beverage is a natural one fashion and apparel um you know maybe you lump it under the first category of durable consumer goods but but fashion and apparel the fashion industry has been um you know under the under scrutiny about its environmental and social practices and so they're very eager to find ways to to lighten their impacts so those are three main areas that we've uh, we see sort of endless endless opportunity before we even get into consumer uh, packaged goods and things like you know toothpaste and and paper towels excellent excellent now can you talk a little bit about what's your business model and
0: how how do you think about your non-profit Uh, how, how do you make money or fund your growth
1: yeah, we've got philanthropic funding for most of our budget this year. Next year, we will start charging a certification fee, yeah. which is the fee for somebody to go through the certification process and then license the brand label. And we thought long and hard about how to price this, whether it should be on a revenue tier basis or a voluntary donation. We we ended up settling on a on a, a revenue on a certification fee per ton of carbon, which essentially says if you're a larger company and you're emitting more carbon you're going to pay us more. If you're a company that has miraculously found a way to have a zero carbon emissions footprint, you don't pay us anything and you still get the label. So the ideal case is that every company is carbon neutral naturally and doesn't pay us anything because they have no emissions um we're a long ways from that but you know you got to price yourself or build a model that that sort of eventually prices yourself out of existence because that's sort of the purpose of a of a non <laughs>
0: yes absolutely no very interesting and do you have competitors and uh, did you see others in there and think mm, they're not quite doing it uh, this we've got a smarter way of doing this or um i mean i've seen some i say eye-watering figures for the growth of the market there will be others around hungry and it's uh you know, uh, hundreds of billions, even you know, maybe even a trillion dollars. Some of the figures I've seen, um, so a, a big market.
1: Yeah, that that's a key point there. And I'm gonna I'm gonna say something. You're probably gonna laugh because it just sounds too Pollyanna-ish, But um, I, I don't think of anyone as a competitor because our market is is far too small, right? I think if if there's a player doing something that's similar to what we're doing, um, I'd like to collaborate with them or you know have them. 10x their growth next year because it means they're they're you know they're they're multiplying uh you know climate solution delivery by by 10 times so yeah there are some consulting firms and and um, uh, carbon offset brokers that provide labels there are certainly plenty of firms that provide carbon measurement services but the market is so tiny and and we're doing so little when it comes to actually addressing the climate crisis that um, I, I don't think of any of these folks as a threat to us because, um, you know, there's just, there's just far too little of it going on and the market opportunity is too huge. Sometimes we need to look a little deeper to understand
0: the world we're living in. Young Platform offers a range of programs to help understand our relationship with nature, climate change, the unconscious dynamics influencing our lives, how we can develop the resilience and creativity to handle change. In January, 2021 young platform is offering a complimentary online summit on dreams, on how dreams can help you on your personal journey, make 2021 a dream year and enroll on youngplatform.com. I guess the other side of it is you talk about this labeling and so forth. Um, Carbon footprint is is presumably uh, is very important, and yet at the same time, uh, not something that seems to feature uh, very significantly in 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 when you go to the supermarket, at least. But maybe in other uh, consumer categories, or or you know, as you say, in more durables and so forth, is that uh, an important index as well? And do you do you uh, is there a possibility for you, for example, to work with other? Uh, uh, labeling or other ways of of you know assessing carbon uh, uh, dynamics.
1: Yeah, I mean it's back to that experience when you're buying something, right? When when you see that your pair of shoes has uh, two kilograms of carbon, what does that mean to you? I mean it, it doesn't mean anything. If you know that that carbon has been mitigated in some way, then then that should be meaningful. But just simply knowing the the absolute con- carbon content of a pair of shoes without any reference point or any understanding of what's happening to deal with that carbon. We, 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 all, we know what the carbon footprint is of the world. It's 55 gigatons. Knowing that is not the problem, right? <laughs> what the problem is, is no one's doing anything about it. Uh, so we sort of, we sort of chafe at the, the idea that over the next 10 years, you know, all companies and, and individuals will gain a much better understanding of what their carbon emissions are because it's, it's absolutely the wrong goal. It's the wrong objective, right? It's, it's something that needs to be seen as the necessary precursor to actually doing something about your carbon. Sorry. Can so, you that again? A,
0: sorry, sorry. I missed
1: that point. Sorry. Um, sorry. Which point? Well, you said it was an absolute precursor. I, I wasn't- yeah, measuring 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 your carbon is a precursor to doing something about your carbon. Right. right. So, so it's 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 critical that everybody understand what their carbon footprint is. But you know, I could tell you that as the average American, your carbon footprint is probably around 20 to 25 tons of carbon. But that's not the that's not the real problem, right? That's just an observation. the The problem is, what are you going to do about that 20 to 25 tons? Um, is and the same would go for a company. And well, you so say that, you say
0: that. I'm just curious here. Um, I know uh, the American approach is is sometimes quite different on this, but you know, for, for an individual, of course, you know, you can see that. But surely, when it comes to corporations, it's the government. It's it's the states. This should be regulated. It shouldn't be an individual fundamentally having to decide, you know, whether to buy it or not. That is the fundamental issue that's driving uh, a corporate's response to carbon emissions. Surely these are, you know, global. There are massive externalities, and there are really areas where we need more regulation, first and foremost.
1: I, I would. I mean, I worked for you know years and years on climate policy. I would. I would certainly agree with that statement. I would also say that you know. The first climate summit was held in nineteen ninety two It's almost thirty years after that, and we don't have effective binding global climate policy so convince me that it's going to happen in any reasonable time scale for
0: sure for sure i i just interesting that you were talking about it from you know from an individual perspective. I'm just wondering whether it changes as, as a corporate from corporate perspective and um you know i mean clearly there's been a particular uh, version in 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 America of uh well deregulation or taking away of, of of you know environmental regulations in the last administration but um that will have a big impact presumably if if the if the uh regulatory authorities and, and you know and notwithstanding the fact that, that the, the US government uh and the federal government has you know pulled back and, and stripped away uh environmental uh regulations that the states seem to have taken on more and 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 you know there's, there's more kind of decentralized activity as it were but more generally um Reasons to be optimistic that there will be more regulation and presumably that will get companies, that will be the
1: single most effective thing to get companies thinking about measuring their carbon. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I, I guess I, I, I like the phrase reason reason to be optimistic. I don't think it's a reason to be complacent, though, because I think for, for a long time, people have said, oh, well, policy is going to take care of this problem. And I don't think, you know... Uh, uh, there's, there's too much, there's too much of a problem. The problem is too large to rule out any solution. We need absolutely everything. We need everything to be done 10 times faster than it's happening today. And I think, you know, we, people get around these various cosmetic debates around, you know, the design of markets and exactly how we should channel capital and whether it should be markets or policy. And it's, it's hilarious when you look at what actually needs to happen. I mean, to even to hit, um, you know, a reasonable level of warming, we need to take a trend that has been in place basically since the beginning of, um, you know, beginning of the climate negotiations, and we need to reverse it, not just, you know, not to slow it down, but actually reverse it direction and you need to take global emissions that have been rising you know three-ish percent per year and start making them drop seven percent per year and that 10 percentage point swing is something that it just it's a very basic basic thing and i think that most people forget about that when they debate you know well should we do this or should we do that interesting you use the word cosmetic i mean there are some people who who who
0: you know uh critics who are very concerned about the continuing should we say marketization of these questions and the markets are everywhere carbon markets have not been successful as you well know and um there's you know reason to be optimistic that maybe that will change in the future but there are a lot of problems around carbon markets uh, in europe uh, in california and, 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 and you know these are things that are still evolving but it's surely it's surely there are legitimate questions in a, in a world where we have seen you know vast uh increasing deregulation across the board uh it's it's it is really a significant Question to ask about what is the role? And it's, of course, it's not binary; it's not either or. But uh, you, you you can say that you know uh, uh, you can even say carbon markets are good and helpful, and
1: also say that we absolutely need more regulation. Well, well, just to be clear, the carbon markets the, the mark carbon markets that you're talking about are created by regulation. So it's impossible to separate carbon markets from policy because they wouldn't exist without policy and the reason they haven't been successful is is due to a function of policy design and here in new england we've got a great example of that which is the uh the second or the first really uh kind of regional emissions trading program which is a carbon market and the first phase of it was unsuccessful because the cap was set too high back to kind of getting a little bit too technical, but <laughs> basically people were allowed to pollute too much. And in the second phase of it, the cap was lowered and, the, and it's been extremely successful at driving in particular coal out of the generating fleet in New England. So, so I think I, I do think people like to sort of stage, you know, markets, oh, it's markets versus policy, you know, it's government versus the free market, but carbon markets are created by government and when they're, when they're poorly designed, they don't function. And they don't achieve their intended purpose and and they become poorly designed because of the, f- the political process that has to happen during the design because it's a consensus driven process
0: well it's interesting that you, you have an, a, <clears throat> an example to hand where you've seen the improvement over time and, and you know presumably there is some learning and, and uh, these markets can work better uh, interesting to get your 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 perspective uh and and as i say i i'm not saying it's a binary thing at all and and you know it, but there is a genuine question to 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 be addressed and to talk about in in terms of you know regulation, and uh, inter- very very interesting to get to get your perspective. But presumably, we we will be moving into a more regulatory uh, uh, you know phase. We say at least uh, from the United States, and and it looks like you know, and of course, uh, the, the, a lot of the world takes its lead from 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 America in in that respect. So you know. Uh, these kind of hybrids, hybrids, these interconnected between you know, regulation and markets and so forth. Um, uh, commitment of the of the next administration to to deal with with the you know carbon carbon issues is is clearly uh, significant and. It's got to be a good thing for, 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 your, for your organization, uh, I guess. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it's like to be a social entrepreneur? I mean, it sounds like you've, you've, you've got a strong policy background, uh, analytical research, presumably working in, in, in policy organizations. Um, uh, you're a social entrepreneur now, I guess. Um, what, what does that mean and what's that journey been like for you?
1: Uh, well, if I, back to your to your previous point, I hope that America can give give the world something to f- something to follow. I don't think we've done we've we've done the opposite. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, let's uh, let's let the next four years um, play out before we make yeah. that call. Um, yeah, am I a social entrepreneur? I suppose. I mean, I've got a social purpose to my work, and and starting something is entrepreneurial. Um, I don't technically kind of label myself that. Uh, just sort of somebody trying to apply, um, you know, a, a bit of experience to solving a really difficult problem. Um, but you know, it's it's been a really really fun journey so far. We, we're a small team of just three, but a handful of um, you know part timers as well as a number of volunteers and a really devoted board. Uh, who who provide a ton of input to the organization so um, I, I think you know the, the challenge with with anything is to figure out how exactly you're going to approach the approach the opportunity or approach the problem that you're trying to solve and um, that's as true as much here as it is anywhere with a, with a small organization you have all the same sort of challenges that you do in a larger organization you just have them all um, you know they, they all need to be handled by a team of you know or three people. So there's marketing, there's sales, there's product management, there's operations, there's client, there's customer success and and, and client services and all those things that live in big companies, um, you know, also live in small organizations. So I think, you know, day to day, part of the fun about being a social entrepreneur is, is, is figuring out a way to juggle all those things and put them together in the right uh, balanced portfolio that helps us sort of, Make sure that the organization is growing in the right direction, um, and you know, achieving impact with very limited resources. Yeah, yeah. H- what's it been like funding for you, Austin? Uh, we found that the traditional philanthropic funders. I, I, I know the U.S. is sort of unique in this respect, but um, there are a lot of traditional foundations um, and philanthropic funders that yeah, yeah. Uh, that exist here, and and that market honestly, it, it pours most of its resources into. Um, policy, you're chasing policy. So uh, you know, back to the policy versus markets discussion. <laughs> you know, I, I I don't, I don't, you know, again, I don't think that it's wrong to turn away from policy, but I don't even know how much, but I would get, I would bet 90, 90 or more percent of the philanthropic dollars that go into anything related to climate go into policy. Right. And so it's been tough for us going out to those more traditional institutions and saying hey we have this approach but it's not going to look like what you're used to funding Um, so we found that the the people who are more willing to support our model are uh more uh individuals high net worth individuals um technology companies through their corporate philanthropy arms um and uh you know and and sort of passionate founder founder funder types um we we will have a revenue stream from the companies that we work with because we're providing a valuable service to them. So that's um, heartening to know that that's on the horizon. But um, but it hasn't been you know it hasn't been particularly easy because as I said most of the funding really typically goes to um, to, to policy work. Yeah, very
0: interesting. And of course you're in that your early stage of development and it's you know and uh, trying to show impact and so forth is all, is problematic at the best of times. But at an early stage. What, what you mentioned uh, the service you're providing to companies, uh, what what's the feedback you're getting? How do they assess you know the value of what you're providing, and how's that been going?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, I think they um, they allow or, or they they look at whether um, you know our label allows them to enter into a conversation about climate change with their consumers, um, and. Sort of puts 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 climate as you know something that's front and center within their brand, and the feedback we've gotten has been really positive. Um, it's it's been mostly centered on the fact that we seem to get their marketing challenges. We sort of speak speak marketing language, which is ultimately the the ROI driver for them. Um, if they feel like they can they can justify uh, taking these steps, and and this is maybe a little bit ironic, but you know sustainability budgets typically are very very small. Um, they're just a cost center, but, you know, for, for, um, for organizations to be able to, to put money into a marketing budget, um, you know, there needs to be a a return. And in this case, I think you know, they can say, well, our brand is stronger. Our, um, our message to consumers is stronger. Our competitive advantage is, is, is stronger because we're now reflecting the climate impacts of the things that we're, um, that we're making, And, uh, yeah, so, so the, so the feedback has been positive. People have also really enjoyed, um, learning that it's not that hard to estimate your carbon emissions, uh, which is, I think, you know, has been paralyzing to a lot of people. And, uh, we created a piece of technology to help them do that. And that's been going well. So, yeah. And and then in a a year's time or so, we'll, uh, sit down to work on actually quantifying the consumer response to the label. Yeah,
0: so we've talked about this a little bit. But so what would you say have been the, the biggest challenges on, on the journey? Just maybe focus on one or two. We've, we've hinted at a few. Of course, it's it's uh, building any organization and starting off particularly like this and, and as a nonprofit and in, in, in this area is, is inevitably challenging, but the one or two particular challenges that you'd identify?
1: Uh, well, fundraising, of course. It's funny, I um, did a couple... Uh, Actually, one of them was with Milago Foundation this summer, um, but a, a, you know, a fellowship program there. And um, you know, it's easy to structure all your organization's problems in the context of, oh, I don't have enough money to pay for that. Um, so, so, I would say um, yeah. the big, the big overriding, overriding challenge is trying to do a lot with a with a budget that um, isn't, you know, where we didn't get a five five million dollar dump of venture capital at the beginning yeah. that allowed us to throw out some, you know, stock options to people and hire hire as a young growing, um, for-profit, uh, equity backed company would. So, um, yes, yeah, so that's not easy. And it, it means that you end up just having to roll up your sleeves and <clears throat> do a whole lot more with a smaller team. Um, we had no idea what effect the pandemic would have and yes, basically yeah. way, uh, drastically scaled back hiring. Um, actually we froze hiring and, um, fortunately it has not seem to have an effect if anything the opposite um on you know on corporate uh, climate commitments we've seen a lot of activity in that area this year <coughs> excuse me and uh and so that has been less challenging although you know the april april may months were a little bit rocky and and difficult um Finding hiring and finding the right people to 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 build or to add to a small organization is is really difficult because you you add one person to a three person team and you've just increased your staff size by thirty three percent, and that's a really has a really big impact on the dynamic of the team and that that will be true for any social entrepreneurs. So it's been great to be able to sort of network with with um, you know fellow. Leaders of of other nonprofits, tech focused nonprofits, to see what they've what they've done. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Who've supported you on your journey,
0: Austin? It's a it's a it's a tough tough journey.
1: Uh, financially, we we have our, our two, uh, two two seed originating funders, uh, BioLite and Peak Design, which are two companies based here in the U.S. Um, we've got funding from the Milago Foundation. Uh, we did a, a technology accelerator program this summer and got backing from, from them. It's called fast forward. Okay. Org. Yes. I, I've interviewed Kevin. That's great. Okay. The other Kevin. Yep. Yep. Yes, <laughs> yes that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, he's great. And, and they've just got this incredible niche and, um, you know, wonderful community of, of folks who have, um, yeah. done incredible things with technology in, in the nonprofit world. Uh, Google.org came in to us uh, through that program, as well as a handful of smaller uh, individuals. We did a Kickstarter campaign about a year ago, which provided us a little bit of money. Um, and then we've we've had contributions from a couple of, um, of high net worth foundations. Yeah, yeah. And emotionally and professionally...
0: I'm ready for a vacation. <laughs> yeah, you've had a bit of support, I guess. I mean, you mentioned the Malago Foundation being part of a group of people, you know, who are, you know, building uh, not-for-profit social change
1: organizations, that kind of thing. Has that been uh, important for you? You know, it's yeah, because it allows a group of people to get together and and tell sort of all sides of the story um, and just the nature of trying to. Build an organization, you end up having to tell only certain sides of the story to certain people. Yeah. Um, but but with uh, with a group of founders and and, um, and CEOs of of organizations uh, like with the Milago Fellowship and then fast forward, it's it's an opportunity to just say, you know, in any given week, man, I'm really tired, or wow, I'm really <laughs> struggling with this staff issue, or boy, I have like you know, really suffering. Um, you know, from confidence issues this week. And cause it all happens to everybody. It's just, you don't talk about it very much. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that that's been really, really nice. There's one conversation I remember having and somebody described that you know, basically two out of the three people who founded her organization were suffering from serious burnout and had scaled back to four day work weeks. And then, you know, she went on to talk about all the research that's been done on yeah. um, entrepreneurs and the high levels of stress and everything else. So you've got to find ways to manage that. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, and in this year at a time when there's yeah. crazy amounts of other undue stress that we've all got to go through with the um, with the pandemic. So.
0: Yeah, aside from a, a vacation which you clearly uh, deserve, um, w- what's next for you as an organization?
1: Yeah, well, next Monday we have a, a woman joining our team to work on marketing, which is really important for the organization. We're also looking to hire somebody on um, kind of more of the tech- technical stuff, measurement and, um, and carbon impact, so dealing with some of the questions that we started off this conversation talking about. Um, fundraising, of course. And, uh, and then, you know, the, the big sort of big event that happens is in early January, we start certifying the companies that we recruited this year. So 250 companies will go through the certification process and we've got to manage that with a team of four. Um, so there's a lot to do there, but, uh, but we've got a pretty good process laid out uh, that'll keep us busy from January to April. And then we'll do a big marketing event in April. Um, and, uh, then it's back to the beginning of the Ferris wheel, uh, starting to recruit more companies for 2021. Right, right. Well, I wish you the very best
0: success with your ongoing work, Austin. And uh, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your insights and, and your hard work over all this time.
1: Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate that. And uh, it's been a really interesting and, and wide-ranging conversation.
0: Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make
1: sure you don't miss any future podcasts.